Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Jeff Loftus, author of Lead Like Ike, 10 Business Strategies from the CEO of D-Day, part one of two. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Jeff Loftus, author of Lead Like Ike, 10 Business Strategies from the CEO of D-Day, part one of two. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Jeff Loftus, formerly the Vice President of Communications for the Society of Corporate Secretaries and Governance Professionals, shares with us his insights on the leadership lessons of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the American CEO of D-Day, and how by applying these lessons, business professionals can achieve far greater success in today's challenging and rapidly evolving business world. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Jeff Loftus, author of Lead Like Ike, 10 Business Strategies from the CEO of D-Day, and formerly the Vice President of Communications for the Society of Corporate Secretaries and Governance Professionals. Previously, Jeff served as Managing Editor of Across the Board, a monthly business magazine of thought and opinion at the Conference Board. He has addressed large audiences from Fortune 500 companies on numerous business topics, has been a regular contributor to Forbes.com, and has been interviewed by Fortune, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and now the Strategy Driven Podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nathan. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Our audience has probably heard me mention it off and on through all the podcasts. I'm a Naval Academy graduate, and so a book about another Academy graduate, of course, General Eisenhower graduated from West Point, is always exciting for me, and particularly how you presented Eisenhower's leadership concepts and lessons learned through both a historic and a contemporary perspective was just fascinating. So our audience is in for a real treat, and I'm really glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Well, Jeff, to start out our conversation, I was hoping you could tell our audience a little bit about the leadership style of General Eisenhower. Um, well, the way I'd like to start, actually, is to tell you my impression of his leadership, because my impression evolved as I researched him. Uh, when I first started this this book, mm-hmm. I thought he was a, a confident, uh, good general. And the more I researched him and the more I came to know him, 
uh, the more convinced I became that he was a great man and that the reason he was a great leader was that he was a great man. And the qualities in him that I think made for a great leader, uh, the, the number one quality is honesty. And I don't just mean being honest uh, in what you say, how you communicate, although that's extremely important, mm-hmm. and Eisenhower did that. But the other thing is being honest in terms of accepting responsibility. Uh, Eisenhower never uh, tried to blame anybody else. He never used alibis or excuses. If things went wrong, he accepted it and he took the blame. And sometimes his only involvement in things was as the final decision to do a thing. And he still took the blame and he took all of the blame. And um, he never gave uh, auxiliary reasons for failure, even though there were frequently valid auxiliary reasons. He just took the blame and he moved on. Um, He was honest with himself in that he reviewed his performance and um, frequently with one or two trusted subordinates. He had a small circle of aides who he could be very frank with. They were really more like professional army friends than they were staff members. Okay. And um, he would be completely honest with them, and he would explain where he had messed up and how he had to change to do better. And I think that that's a a level of self-scrutiny that's unusual. And and so when I say honesty, I mean honest in your communications, honest in accepting responsibility, honest in self-evaluation. The other thing he showed, uh, and this made him a great leader, was his concern for the people who worked for him. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower never forgot that every boy who died in Europe uh, belonged to a family back home, and that in the grand scale of war, it was only one death. But to that family at home, it was a gigantic catastrophe. And he talked in those terms. And because of that, um, a lot of his strategy was driven by what will succeed the quickest and save the most lives, and what will do this job the most efficiently, and by efficiently, Eisenhower specifically meant at the cost of the fewest lives. And he was very aware that uh, every death was a catastrophe at home. And he never forgot that. And his concern for his men went beyond just whether they lived or died. It was things like the morale. He, uh, when wine was captured in France, and a lot of wine was captured in France, as you can imagine, yes. he made sure that enlisted men got the same quantities of captured wine as officers did. He made sure that enlisted men had transportation to uh, recreational facilities. You know, officers would frequently requisition jeeps, but the enlisted men couldn't do that. So Eisenhower made sure that there were trucks available to shuttle them back and forth to recreational facilities. Um, and Eisenhower even went so far as to throw a general out of a villa that he was staying in, and he converted, Ike converted the villa into a rec center for enlisted men. Uh, The other thing that Ike did was he modeled uh, a kind of behavior that he was, he was one of the regular guys. You know, he never 
he never left behind the small-town boy from Abilene, Kansas. Even when he was a five-star general, he was still a small-town boy from Abilene, Kansas. And he, whenever the troops were about to leave on any of the invasions he commanded, he would go and talk to as many of them before they departed as he could. Because he always used to say, I think that before I send these guys into battle, they should have a chance to look me face to face. They should yeah. be able to see me and talk to me. And uh, he would ask them where they were from, and he would ask them if they played baseball, and he would ask them if they played football. And he always had a little bit of conversation for them. And uh, at one point, uh, before he saw the 101st Airborne Division, uh, just prior to the Normandy landings, he was talking to them about how good the planning was and how they shouldn't be worried. And one of the airborne troopers called out, don't you worry, General, we'll take care of this for you. So he yeah. clearly connected to them. And that's what made him a great leader, is that he connected, he was concerned, and they knew it. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, well, actually all of those things are qualities, I personally think, that we see a lot of the leaders that we have today lacking. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's just refreshing to be able to look back and see men like Eisenhower who had such genuine leadership qualities. It, it, you know, it kind of makes you want, wish you lived in that time period. I mean, because I, I served in the military. I wish I lived in that time frame just so I could have served with him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, Jeff, in Lead Like Ike, and I don't want to diminish Eisenhower's strengths because I think his strengths far overshadowed his shortfalls. But you also highlight some of what Eisenhower felt were his shortcomings. And Absolutely. one of those that struck me, something that I had not thought of before, even though I had, through my time at the academy, done a lot of studying of the tactics and the battles of World War II, he felt that he lacked and aggressiveness in moving forward with the North African campaign that was really America's first engagement in World War II, at least in the European theater. From my personal experience, I believe that a lack of aggressiveness is is kind of common amongst, I'll call them newly minted executives and managers at all levels of the organization as they get comfortable in this new position that they've taken on. What I was wondering is what can new executives and managers learn from Eisenhower and his reflections on what he could have done better in this area of aggressiveness? Well, there were, there were two major things that he realized when he did his self-evaluation after North Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is that he had allowed Lloyd Friedenhall to stay in command for a very long time. And he realized that Friedenhall was not getting the job done with his troops. Uh, Friedenhall wasn't his only commander, but he was the main commander who was pushing eastward along the rim of North Africa. And um, Patton was sitting back in Casablanca, which was totally secured by that time. And 
was largely doing ceremonial things like hanging out with the sheiks and uh, watching troop reviews of the local troops, and he was doing nothing. And Friedenhall was moving extremely slowly. Mm-hmm. And Ike was very aware that Friedenhall was moving too slowly. He considered whether or not he should fire him, and after a fair amount of deliberation, decided he wasn't going to do that. And afterwards, he realized that was a huge waste, that he should have, um, if not put Patton in, he should have put somebody in, because Friedenhall was just too slow. And in fact, uh, Friedenhall got sent back to the United States and was given a training command and never saw combat again. This was relatively early in the, in the U.S. Army's involvement. So to be transferred out of combat once and for all at the very beginning was a, was a pretty bad thing. And yes. um, Ike realized he was way too slow. Um, he also was very aware that Montgomery, who was pursuing the Germans from Egypt, basically, towards Tunisia. So Montgomery was moving westerly as Friedenhall was moving easterly. Um, that Montgomery also moved extremely slowly. Mm-hmm. And Montgomery had just won a gigantic battle at El Alamein, and then he failed to follow up with any kind of aggressiveness. And Ike was very aware that the lack of aggression on the two commanders' parts was, was uh, fruitless, that it wasted time and it wasted lives. Now, Montgomery was not under his command at the time, but Ike not only learned from his mistakes, he learned from others. Um, the other thing he realized in terms of being aggressive, uh, when he did his self-evaluation, he was in North Africa, but the Sicily landings had already taken place. And the Sicily campaign ground on and on and on. And afterwards, he realized that um, he landed the invasion in the wrong place on the island. He should have landed the invasion very near Messina, which is the largest city closest to the Italian mainland. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in, he landed on the southern um, or the southeastern corner of Sicily. If you think of Sicily as a sort of large triangle with a point that goes southward, he landed his troops on the southern point of the triangle, and they worked their way north. And he realized he should have started at Messina, which is the point of the triangle right next to Italy. And he could have saved himself immense amounts of time by letting the Navy uh, cover the, the ground, so to speak, on the water, as opposed to having the Army cover the ground on the ground. Right. Right. So he, he realized that he needed to get aggressive, and he became convinced, as I mentioned earlier, the best way to preserve the men's lives and their health and their morale was by being aggressive, because troops who are being aggressive and are succeeding feel good about themselves. You know, when you look at, at troops like Patton's Third Army in uh, 44 and 45, or you look at the airborne troops, all of whom were in intense combat situations repeatedly, uh, the pressure was enormous on them, and yet the morale was very high in those groups because their commanders were so aggressive and they knew they were succeeding. Okay. So really, it sounds like the lesson for our 
executives and managers is is one to do self assessments and, and to do them mm-hmm. regularly. Absolutely. And then identify those things that are obstacles to their being more aggressive, whether they might be some subordinates, maybe they've made a bad call. But then to learn from those mistakes, make the adjustment, and then move forward. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Jeff, there was another philosophy that I'll admit I had to think about for a while because it struck me a little, a little oddly. And that was the philosophy Eisenhower had that you can never have too many plans. And mm-hmm. when I first read that, it hit me analysis paralysis. That's just what hit me. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I bet our listeners are going to, when they hear that philosophy, think that same thing. Why did Eisenhower believe he could never have too many plans? And what was the unique approach he took to develop his strategic plans? Well, he believed you could never have too many plans, but he also famously said that before the battle, planning is everything, that once the battle begins, planning means nothing. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that is that planning allows you to think through as many contingencies as possible. Yes. But that once the action starts, you need to be flexible, you need to improvise, you need to uh, evaluate the situation as it's developing on a constant basis and be ready to go any which way. So I think that when you take, you can never have too many plans in the context of planning is everything before and nothing after, mm-hmm. that it then makes sense. The other thing that Eisenhower had going for him that prevented uh, analysis paralysis, and this is, I think, the key for corporate America, is he had absolute deadlines. He knew he had to invade North Africa by the end of 42. He knew he had to invade Sicily shortly after that. He knew he had to invade uh, northern France. Originally, the plan was in 43, and then logistics in America caused it to be shifted back a whole year. But he knew he had to go in late spring or early summer of 44. It just, these were have-tos. Yes. And not only were the dates, the dates were not literally in cement, but they were close. But there were pressures that were constantly building that meant that you might be able to delay a little, but you couldn't delay a lot. One of Ike's biggest problems was that uh, one of the biggest problems for the D-Day landings of June 6th is that he had millions of troops in England getting ready for this. He had thousands of boats. He had tens of thousands of airplanes. Um there was a gigantic phantom command under Patton in England with balsa wood planes and jeeps and phony ports. Uh, there was all kinds of activity going on. And one of the things Ike was terrified of was that the Germans would discover that the invasion was coming, would discover the nature of the invasion and where it was going and when it was coming. And 
the longer he delayed, the more chances the Germans would have to discover this. And surprise was an essential ingredient of this. So you couldn't have analysis paralysis because analysis paralysis could could literally kill the enterprise whenever it is you finally got it going. Mm -hmm. And he was aware of that. He was aware that no matter how much planning they did, at some point they were going to have to go. And I think that that's, you just have to have that attitude as a manager uh, or as an executive. At some point, you just have to say, we're going. Mm -hmm. Yes. I like what you talked about, too, with once the engagement starts, the planning stops. But because of all the planning we've done, we've actually trained our minds so that, one, even though the a plan never survives once it hits the battlefield, but no matter how many variations, we've probably thought of them in our planning at one point or another. And so now we can pick and choose from the various plans that we've executed. But even for those things that are totally unexpected and never planned for, we have trained our minds to think through the planning phase so efficiently because we have so much practice at it that now it just becomes second nature and we're very capable of executing as events occur. And I guess in a well, contemporary... Go ahead. I was gonna, I'm sorry. One of the things I was going to say is, too, that, that the planning acts, and this is, I think, what you're saying, acts as a training mm -hmm. for your frontline officers, your junior officers, and your frontline workers, or in this case, troops, because they've heard these plans, and they've heard why you're trying to do this, so that when they are confronted with the reality, they can adjust, even if they've never heard the reality they're facing, during the planning, they've heard something similar, or they still know what their objective needs to be, despite the fact that the reality isn't what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, when the airborne landed, they were scattered all over the place. That didn't stop them from forming new groups, not necessarily their own platoons or companies, but they formed new groups, and they went after the missions they'd been given. The troops that came in over the beach landed all over the place, not on target. The tides weren't what they expected. Some of the boats got driven off course because of artillery fire, and the troops hit the beaches, and they realized they were in the wrong place, so they reorganized, and they drove inland to the new place. Right. Um, and, and this was lieutenants and captains. It wasn't generals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody yeah. was, was involved in the planning process. Yeah, and because everyone was involved and everyone understood the strategic objectives, they were exactly. able to, in real time, make decisions that facilitated achievement of the strategic objective, even if it wasn't the exact plan. Yes, and that is something, too, that was very different with the uh, Americans especially, but the Brits as well, but the Americans especially were highly flexible highly improvisational, and the Germans were rigid and hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the Germans, of course, by, by 1944, a lot of the German army were uh, citizen soldiers, but their core was, a, was an old-line professional army, whereas America's army was much more 
completely a citizen soldiery. Yes. And I think that improvising came naturally to them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love... But you have to empower your people. Yes. You know, importing this to business, you have to empower your people. You have to plan and plan and plan and plan, but you have to involve the frontline managers and people so that they can improvise when they see things go wrong. And I think, like you said, in the real business world, when we see folks do that, those are the companies that are more successful. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Jeff Loftus for being with us today and sharing his insights on the leadership lessons we can learn from the CEO of D-Day. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Jeff Loftus and Lead Like Ike at www.jeffloftus.com. Until next time, so long.